Amen. Wonderful to see you here this morning. If you have a Bible, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 28, we'll be reading from verses 16 to 20 together. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. So this is, just as you're finding it, this is just after the women have been to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday and found the tomb empty. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. So today we conclude our sermon series on being empowered as we dive on this Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday, into the Trinity. Now, hopefully as we go through this passage, we'll see together that the Trinity is the most foundational truth in the whole universe, that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so far in this series, over the past three weeks, we've explored the significance of living an empowered life in the light of the ascension and of Pentecost. So just a quick recap, so you know where we've been if you've not been with us for the past two weeks or so. The ascension is crucial because it reminds us that Jesus' ministry and work didn't end with his resurrection, um, his death and resurrection. Jesus ascended and he now sits at the right hand of the Father and he continues to do everything that he did that we read about in the Gospels. But now he's doing them all over the world, all over the place, to lots of people at once, all at the same time. His ministry is not bound by space or time. And that means, church, that when we read the Gospels and we read about Jesus having compassion, or Jesus healing the sick, or Jesus raising the dead, or Jesus delivering people from all kinds of things that keep them in prison, Jesus is still doing those things. He's still doing them in my life, he's doing them in your life, and we get to see that every single Sunday as we gather together and share stories of what God is doing. It also means, though, Jesus ascended and sat at the right and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says that we are in Christ. Now, what does that mean that our actual, where is our actual home? Where do we actually belong? Where do you belong? You belong at the right hand of the Father. We with Jesus get to explore and well, we get to inherit with Jesus everything that belongs to God, the incomparable riches of his grace. Jesus is still doing everything that he did and he's involving us in it, which is, the, of course, one of the meanings of Pentecost. Last week, we thought about how the Holy Spirit was poured out on all of the church so that we're empowered to do the things that Jesus did. He uses us to continue his ministry. One person put it like this, Christmas was God with us, Easter was God for us, Pentecost is God with us and in us. 
And so today, as we finish this series on Empowered, it's Trinity Sunday. Now, the Trinity is a very complex doctrine to understand. So rather than me trying to explain it just by giving a lecture on the Trinity, I think that the best way to explain it is just by working through these verses, the set reading for Trinity Sunday, verse by verse, and seeing what they have to say about the Trinity. Because the Bible will do a much better job than I ever could of explaining the Trinity. So keep Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20 open in front of you. And we're going to work through these verses together and how they empower us as disciples today. So the first thing we're going to look at is how this passage, this passage tells us that we're empowered for discipleship. Look at verse 16. So these are the last few verses of Matthew's gospel. As I said just a moment ago, what's happened in Matthew's gospel is that the women have gone to the empty tomb. They've seen that Jesus is alive and Jesus tells the women to pass the message on to the, to the, to the male disciples to go to Galilee where they're to wait for him there. They're to go to the mountains, the hills of Galilee and wait for Jesus. Now just think about this for a moment. I think that this is a pretty remarkable description of what discipleship is. The disciples have just been in Gethsemane with Jesus in the absolute agony of the garden. They've seen Jesus hanging on a cross. They've been carrying loads of grief, loads of uncertainty, lots of just confusion at having to witness their best friend being crucified. And the next thing that they're told is that they're going to have to make a three to five day journey from Jerusalem to Galilee and wait for Jesus. And yet they did it anyway. We're not great at waiting, are we? If one of the fruits of the Spirit we need in our culture, in this generation, more than any other, it is quite possibly patience. Everything's on demand, isn't it? Do you have to wait for your favourite films to come out on DVD? Now you just stream it on Netflix. Last week I was watching the Europa League final. It was Sevilla, uh, Sevilla versus Roma. And as you know, it went to a penalty shootout. And just as it got to the penalty shootout, just as the first, I think it was Sevilla player, was about to take their first kick, I was watching it on BT Sport at home, and the dreaded buffering circle started to appear. It wasn't quite like that, no. The, the dreaded buffering circle started to appear. Now, what do you think I did in that moment? I had a number of options available to me. Do you think, here's one option, option A. Do you think I turned to Ellie, who'd given up her evening to watch the football with me? Ellie hates watching football. Do you think I turned to Ellie and in that moment took the opportunity just to spend some time with her and to talk her through our days and to tell her how much I loved her and thought, this is a wonderful gift of time here now. I can just spend some extra time with my wife. That's option A. Option B, do you think I took the time to pray? Oh, some extra time here. I'm going to get on my knees and spend some time with Jesus. Or option C, which was get impatient and start complaining and whinging at the Wi-Fi for not being quick enough because I knew that I was going to miss the first penalty. Well, of course, I chose option A. No, I'm joking. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I chose option C because 
I can be impatient. I, like lots of us, am not very good at waiting. The disciples, on the other hand, in this moment, trusted Jesus' words that was given to them through the women, and they chose to head the three to five days and be patient and wait for Jesus. Obedience is an expression of love for God. Obedience is God's love language. And this is the pattern of discipleship that is set for us in the scriptures. And often, obedience means waiting, and it means waiting for God to show up. God's love language is obedience. We're empowered for discipleship. Now, secondly, we're empowered to worship. Look at verse 17 with me. When they saw him, some worshipped, but some doubted. Now, this is where we begin to see the doctrine of the Trinity in these verses. The disciples were all raised as devout Jews. They believed in one God. Yet in this instance, and actually lots of instances in in the New Testament, we see the disciples worshipping Jesus. They somehow believe that Jesus is an expression of that one God. Now, the disciples would have grown up to learn this particular verse from the New Testament off by heart, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The disciples never veered from this being the the truth about who God is, that God is one. And yet here they are worshipping Jesus. Now, what does this show us? It shows us that the disciples believed were beginning to understand that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is clearly articulated all the way through the Bible. In fact, I'd say it's as clear in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Look at Isaiah 48, for example. This is verses 12 to 16. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I, am call- whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me filled with his spirit. So this is an Old Testament passage that talks about the Messiah, God becoming man, Jesus being sent by God and filled with the spirit. Now, all the way through the Old Testament, you'll see the Trinity explained in in terms like this, that God is one and yet he's three distinct persons. Joanna talked about this a little bit last week when we looked at, she took us through Genesis 1. Even in the opening few verses of the scriptures, you have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit clearly explained. The whole of the scriptures are Trinitarian in their shape. Now, because the disciples understood this through reading the Hebrew scriptures, it made perfect sense to them that Jesus would be a manifestation of God himself. That Jesus was distinct from God and yet God. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They worship Jesus as God. Now, alongside worship, Matthew tells us that some of the disciples doubted. Now, given their experience at the cross, this is totally understandable, isn't it? 
they just witnessed Jesus suffering in the most appalling way. Doubt would have been natural in this case. And now Jesus is stood in front of them and is alive. How on earth can this be true? Now, I think that Matthew intentionally includes the disciples' doubt at this moment to show that even Jesus' closest friends experience doubt. It's okay to experience doubt and uncertainty. And if you're here today and you're experiencing doubts or you're experiencing um, uncertainty, perhaps you're going through real grief at the moment, know this, that Jesus meets us in our doubt. Jesus meets us in our struggles. Jesus will always extend his grace to us, whatever it is that we are going through. And in verse 18, we see a beautiful picture of this. Jesus meets the disciples, whether they're worshipping or whether they're doubting, whether they're having a mountaintop moment or whether they're in the valley, Jesus will never wait for us to have the perfect faith, to be the perfect person, to have everything worked out about who we think God is. Jesus will always move towards us just as he always moved towards the disciples. So if you're in a difficult place right now, perhaps you're experiencing pain, perhaps you're experiencing grief, Perhaps you're experiencing difficult relationships. Know this truth that Jesus is moving towards you. Jesus will always move towards you. So we're empowered to worship whatever state we find ourselves in. Thirdly, we're empowered with authority. This is verses 18 to 19. So Jesus tells the disciples here that he's been given all authority He's been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. And yet he says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. Now we can't overlook the significance of this. It means, church, that for those of us who are in Jesus, when we wake up every single morning, we wake up and we can tackle whatever it is that's facing us that day with the authority of Jesus himself. We don't have to depend on our own limited strength, our own limitations, our own weakness, our own, you know, if we're feeling weak, we go and do everything as disciples in the authority of Jesus. So just for a moment, think about your daily routine. What is it that you'll be doing on Monday morning at 11.24? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you do it in his authority. And so when you wake up tomorrow, why not say to yourself, Jesus has all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he says to me, therefore go. Now this understanding of authority that we get to share Jesus's authority transforms our perspective. We don't face challenges in our own strength and we have access to the limitless authority of Jesus whether that's at work, in our relationships, in our marriages, as we bring up our children, as we serve and show kindness, we operate in the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, fourthly, because we have that authority, we're empowered with a purpose. Look at verses 19 to 20. 
Our going has a profound purpose, and it's to fulfill the great commission. We're called to make disciples of all nations, Jesus says, by baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, church, we all get to play our part in this. Playing our part in the Great Commission is not just for clergy. It's not just for vicars or bishops. It's not just for people that work for churches. We all get to play our part in the Great Commission. Now, notice that Jesus' description of discipleship here isn't passive. Being a disciple is not just about turning up to church and ticking the box of, I've been to church that Sunday. It's about active participation in the kingdom of God. We're called to embody the life of Jesus. My discipleship should not and does not end with me. Jesus imagined each disciple becoming a disciple maker who'll become a disciple maker who'll become a disciple maker who'll become a disciple maker. That's the way that the church has grown from 11 disciples in this passage plus the women who went to the tomb, to today, something like two billion people on the planet who profess Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Jesus imagined all of us playing our part in making disciples. And this multiplication of discipleship lies at the heart of the Great Commission. Do you know if every single person in... In fact, if just one person in this church discipled one of a person for a year and then the next year those two people discipled one of a per- one person and that kept continuing it would only take something like 19 years from one person starting a discipleship making movement to reach the whole of the city of Newcastle upon Tyne we're called to be disciples who make disciples now that doesn't mean that we all have to be like Brogan Hume or Nick Barnsley or Billy Graham or Nicky Gumbel or you know anyone like that let me just tell you a quick story Albert McCain was a 24-year-old farmer who'd recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was so full of enthusiasm that he wanted one of his friends to come to church with him so that they could hear about Jesus. However, his friend was far more interested in chasing girls. Eventually, he persuaded this young man to come to church with him by asking him to drive him to church. Albert's friend was spellbound by what he heard. He kept going back to hear more and more until eventually he repented and believed. Albert's friend was a man named Billy Graham. The year was 1934. Now, of course, Billy Graham went on to lead hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, our calling, my calling, might not be to be like Billy Graham, but it might be to be like Albert McCain, just to bring one person just to invest in one person, to disciple one person, and you never know what's going to happen as a result of that. The reason that I started going to church every single week was because my next-door neighbour invited me to go with him. You never know the effects of beginning to disciple or inviting someone into relationship with Jesus. One of the shortest sentences in the Bible, it's one of my favourites, is John chapter 1, verse 42, And it just says this, Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. Who was Andrew's brother? Simon, who Jesus would later rename Peter and who Jesus would say to Peter, Peter, on you, I will build my church. 
Jesus imagined disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. And we can all play our part in that. Now, fifthly, the reason that we can do this is because we're empowered with a new identity. So Jesus says that disciples are made through baptism. Baptism, step one of discipleship. Disciples are made through baptism. And the way that it happens is that we're baptized in one name. And notice that this one name has three persons attached to it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus clearly believed in the Trinity. We're baptized in one name. The name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, just as Jesus was commanding the disciples to go and make disciples by baptizing them, I bet that he would have been remembering his own baptism. And in Jesus' baptism, we get a beautiful glimpse into the Trinity. The Father affirms the Son. If you remember Jesus' baptism, the Son comes to be baptized. Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks his affirmation over Jesus. You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then we see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, the Trinity is evident. Now, Jesus' baptism is supposed to remind us of Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, when God was creating the heavens and the earth... What's happening in creation? The Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. As as Jewish people would have been reading Matthew's account or Mark's account of Jesus' baptism, they would have remembered Genesis 1 and seen all all of the links between the two passages. Now, what are the gospel writers saying about Jesus' baptism? That Jesus is here to usher in new creation that Jesus is going to bring about new creation in us. Now that means for those of us who are disciples, for those of us who have been baptised, we get to participate in being a new, we literally become a new creation through baptism. You are a new creation. It also means that in our discipleship, in our baptism, we get to participate in the profound life of the Trinity itself. In baptism, this is written around our baptistry in in gold letters, Romans 6 verse 4. In baptism, we actually get to share in the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. We share in the life of the Son. In baptism, we become part of the Father's family. And the father speaks over us as his adopted children. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And at our baptism, just as the spirit descended upon Jesus, at our baptism, we get given the promise of the Holy Spirit who will never, ever leave us. God in us and for us forever. God empowering us to do the things that he's calling us to do. You are a new creation you get to share in the life of God himself. Now, just think about this for a moment. For all of time, the Father has been loving the Son, who's been loving the Spirit, who's been loving the Father, who's been loving the Spirit, who's been loving the Son, who's been loving the Father. And that has been going on for all of eternity. And now you are caught up in the life of God himself. C.S. Lewis referred to this, this aspect of God's life as a dance. That the persons of the Trinity are always loving the other, preferring the other, orbiting around the other, dancing around the other, loving the other. 
we're caught up in that life of God. And it has some profound implications for the way that we think about ourselves and the, for the way that we think about life. The first is this, that our affirmation, who we are, comes before our performance. The life of the Trinity shows us that affirmation comes before performance. Now, of course, we see this at Jesus' baptism. Before Jesus had preached any sermon, before he'd raised anybody from the dead, before he healed anybody, the Father spoke over him, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The same is true for you. Every single day before you do or say anything, the Father speaks over you, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, this is great news because it means our, our identity and our worth are not defined by our achievements. And students, that includes your exam results. For those of you that are waiting for exam results right now, they do not define you. The love of God defines you. What the Father says about you defines you and nothing else. For those of you that are struggling with a line manager at work or you're struggling in a particular relationship, or you feel that you're really rubbish at a particular task. Those things do not define you. The Father defines who you are. The Father's affirmation of us is truly what matters. So that's one, that's one uh, implication of the doctrine of the Trinity in our own lives. This, the, one of the other implications of the doctrine of the Trinity is that through the Trinity, everything else that we believe as Christians is magnified and glorified. So consider this, for example, creation. If God were not a Trinity, in other words, if God was, just, if God, was God and he was not three persons, then creation would lack all purpose and meaning. If God is unipersonal, then why on earth would he create? He doesn't know love. He doesn't know community. What, what, what's he creating for? Is he creating out of need? Is he creating out of loneliness? Whereas the triune God is a community of love and he extends that love to his creation and invites us to join in. The Trinity gives depth and significance to every single doctrine, every single belief that the Christian church holds. I'd go as far to say that without the Trinity, nothing in the universe makes sense. Think about grace, for example, the, the doctrine of grace. A unipersonal God would need worship and love from us because he'd somehow be lacking something. He'd need a deficit filling within himself because he has no worship, he has no love, he has no community. In contrast, the God that we worship as Christians, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has everything that he needs within himself. He is a community of love. He has all the worship, all the adoration that he needs within himself. And therefore, our worship of him it's just a sheer act of grace. He doesn't need me to worship him. God doesn't need me to do anything. And yet he invites me into relationship and covenant with him anyway. It's just a sheer act of grace. I'd actually put it to us that only a God who is triune, only a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could have created love to give it rather than to receive it. 
Only a God who is triune could have created love to give it rather than, rather than to receive it. Every other philosophical idea about God, God must have created love to receive it. Whereas our God already had love. He created love to give it. Another implication of the doctrine of the Trinity is for our own relationships. So the persons of the Trinity have always been revolving around each other and pointing to one another. Now, in our own lives, we're called to follow this example and center on our and to center our relationships on other people, just as the persons in the Trinity do. So if you can, just for a moment, imagine a dance show. Imagine that this is a stage and there's like 20 people on the stage. And in this dance show, every single person wanted to be at the center. Every single person wanted to be the center of the show and in the middle. It would be absolutely chaotic. But if they all danced around each other, if they prefer the other, then what you'd get is a beautiful dance show. Now, the same should be true in our friendships, in our marriages, in all of our relationships. Just as we're caught up in the life of God, we should mirror that in the way that we prefer and dance around and orbit, not ourselves, but other people. Imagine, if you will, just for a moment, your closest friends. Imagine a friendship group that you may have at work or at church or wherever it might be. If everyone in that friendship group says, me first, then it's going to be a truly awful friendship group to be part of. It would be an absolute total mess. But if you all say, you first, it's going to be beautiful. The same is true for those of us who are married um, if me and Ellie were always saying, me, if I was saying to Ellie all of the time, me first, Ellie, you've got to put me first all the time, and she was saying to me, it's me first, um, it would be a total disaster. Something as simple as choosing where we should go for date night, what restaurant we're going to go to, would, would always end up in a row. Whereas if we say you first then it's going to be a beautiful marriage. If either or both people in a marriage or a friendship says me first, it's always going to end badly. But if we can learn to say you first, if we can learn to prefer an orbit around the other, it's going to be beautiful. So a quick question for you this morning. How are you at orbiting around other people? How are you at saying you first. Now, lastly, we're empowered with a new presence. Jesus says to the disciples, surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. How can that be true? Only if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to ascend to be seated at the right hand of the Father. But he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with us, to guide us, to empower us, to remind us of who we are, to apply the, to apply the truths that we've looked at today to our own lives. You are my child, God says, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What difference does the Trinity make? Everything.
Without it, nothing, without God, without him, nothing makes sense at all. Can I invite you to stand where you are?